Food is something we all enjoy, but have you ever thought about the history of food? In this Majus podcast episode, Spicing Up the History of Food, we will be following along in a dialogue with Carrie Rizzuto and Dr. Julie Jabert. They discuss course History 220 about how our food was impacted by European food history and the importance of spices in the spice trade. My name is Shania Clark, and you're listening to Spicing Up the History of Food on the Majus Podcast. The Majus Podcast, student-faculty dialogues at Canisius College, is a production of the Department of Communication, offering majors in Strategic Com, Integrated Marketing Communications, Journalism, and Digital Media Arts. My name is Carrie Rizzuto. I'm a Digital Media major here at Canisius College. And my name is Julie Jabert. I'm a member of the History Department at Canisius College. Can you just tell us a little bit about History 220, the history of food, that's the course title? Sure, History 220 is a course I've been teaching for maybe about six or seven years. It's an introductory level history course, which means that pretty much any student at Canisius can take it. It satisfies core curriculum requirements. And it's a very general study of the history of food. I always tell students the first day of class, it's the broadest course I teach because we literally start with prehistory and we end up with the present, which doesn't happen in any of my other classes, but it's thematically focused. So there is something to hang on to in the course of all that chronological change. It's a fun class. Yeah, seems like you guys cover a lot in that. We do. We start with what can we possibly know about the diet of people before we have written history? So we do some archeology span and some paleontology and the students read some biochemical research, which many of them probably understand better than I do. Uh, and then we end up with very contemporary social and political questions. Oh, that's interesting. Wouldn't have ever considered like thinking like food would end up connecting to archeology span out of all things. But that's one of the ways we know what people ate, especially for prehistory, mm -hmm. because there's some really interesting research using the examination of bones and teeth. There's all the science of the kinds of mineral deposits that are left in your bones based on what you eat oh. uh, and what's in the water you drink. But there's also the more basic archeology span of the bones of animals that are found at archaeological sites. And archaeologists can tell how they were killed and how they were butchered and how they were eaten. Uh, even things like are there human teeth marks on the bones or are there just the marks of tools. To some extent they can even figure things out by seeds and the residue of grains that have survived, oh. fossil marks on ancient pots, things like that. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. It's really fun to give students the archeological stuff to read. And every time I teach the course, I find something new because there's still research going on on that stuff. Yeah, I bet. The next question is, why do you think it's important for people to learn about food and its history? Well, I think in a general sense, it's important in the sense that learning history in general is important. In some ways, I want to say that the history of food is important because it's a way that some people get into history, even if they might not think they're interested in other historical topics. Mm -hmm. But I think also in a more specific sense, I think it's important because food and food supply and the ethics and justice of how we handle food is still very important. Mm -hmm. I'm prejudiced because I'm a historian, but I think it, it's hard to figure out how to handle issues relating to food now if we don't have any perspective about how those issues played out in the past. 
Yeah, because I know that there's um, certain things that like we'll learn about in class. Like I, the jungle is one that I always think of whenever people talk about like food back in the day. Uh, where there was all these uh, issues with the way it was processed and whatnot. And it's just kind of like, if they didn't figure it out then, like where would we be today? Exactly, and especially in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the jungle is something that always comes up in my class. It's one of the few food-related topics I think everybody has encountered before they take the course. We're still dealing with the consequences of those controversies and scandals over a hundred years ago. We have the FDA in this country because of the jungle. Yeah. I know you're a secretary of the New York State Association of European Historians. Why do you think European food history is important to the history of Europe? Well, I don't think it's any more important to the history of Europe than to any other part of the world. But my take on it as a European historian certainly is through Europe. That's how I tend to structure the course. For North American students, I think that's a good way into food history because our diets are probably more based on European traditions and European mm -hmm. cooking techniques than any other. There will be exceptions, you know, as we have a more and more diverse student body. I have had students who lived their whole lives in Asia before they came to Canisius, and their take on a lot of food history topics can be quite different from mm -hmm. most of our students or from my own. Again, it partly simply reflects my personal interests and training, but I think it works well in the American context as well. And it broadens the chronological scope. You know, starting by looking at Europe, uh, we have a lot more written records from the European food tradition than we do from, say, the African or the food traditions of either North or South America. Yeah, because I know for America, like Christopher Columbus, obviously a lot of European values came over to America, so we do hold a lot of those. And I think food, Thanksgiving, that's a big one, celebrated every single year. Every everybody, year. Everybody in the U.S. knows what it is and knows all about it. So it's interesting to see how the culture of Europe ended up traveling to America. And I guess I'm just curious, what other countries would you say? Like, are there other places that adopted the European traditions or...? Or like something similar as in like European came to the United States in that aspect. Would you say Mexican food was, is comparable to that in a way? I'm not an expert on Mexican food, mm -hmm. but I think there are a lot of comparisons in the sense that a lot of what we think of as Mexican dishes, a lot of the rice dishes, for example, many of the meat-based dishes, mm -hmm. historians would now say that they have their roots in European cuisine. Oh. Um, on the other hand, the really strong use of corn in Mexican cooking is not European at all because, of course, Europeans didn't have corn until after 1492. No. So yeah. my instinct is to say that what Americans think of as Mexican food is probably a more obvious blending of European and non-European traditions than what we think of as American cooking is. But yeah. even, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, there are elements of Thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be there if it were a purely European meal. Yeah, the turkey would be there. Yeah. The cranberries wouldn't be there. But mm -hmm. the tradition of having a big fall festival centered on a roasted bird, that's very European. How have spices affected the culture of different regions, do you think? 
Well, they've affected every place and probably continue to do so. We're probably a little less conscious of it now because it's so easy for us to get spices. You just go to the grocery store and you can pretty much get everything you want. Historically, the big impact of spices, apart from just on flavor and taste, is the effect on trade routes. The fact that certain spices only grow in certain parts of the world. Pepper is probably the classic example, cloves, cinnamon. These things that really grow only in tropical regions were not accessible to a lot of Europeans. They weren't accessible to North Americans. They weren't even accessible to many parts of Asia without some pretty long distance trade going on. So in the, the usual study of food history, the way spices initially come up is how did spices drive trade routes? There, there were regions which only developed worldwide trade because they had spice crops. There were people from northern regions of the world who took enormous risks to get things like pepper and cloves because they valued them so much. So spices created more variety of diet, but they also affected economies. There were fortunes made from spices. There were trade routes that were carved out. There were also very important effects on the places that grew the spices, because to the extent that especially European colonialism was driven by the desire to, to have access to these spices, you had whole populations of people in, particularly in Pacific regions, who essentially their whole economy would be formed by the need to sell spices to Europeans or to Americans or to people in other parts of Asia. So you had whole economies, whole labor systems that were formed really by the spice market. What countries would you say are the ones that relied on those spice trades, like the most prominent ones that you could probably Probably the most obvious ones would be places like Java, which is in you know, modern Indonesia. To some extent, places in the Caribbean, there was a very prominent spice trade on the island of Grenada. I think mostly growing cloves, but also some other spices. To some extent, parts of Southeast Asia which had a very big market in growing cinnamon. There are sections of Mexico that created a big market in growing vanilla. Those are, those okay. are all examples. Vanilla comes from a bunch of different places, but the Mexican vanilla trade became important. Oh, okay, I see. Another question I have for you about spices. I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, that salt and pepper, kind of like the tabletop go-to spices, where did that whole, these are our two go-tos come from? You know, that's an interesting question, and I don't fully know the answer to that, although I've, uh, I, I've read people kind of speculating about why that is. Mm -hmm. Salt is probably easier to answer than pepper because salt is pretty universal. Salt appears all over the world. There's a, an actual anatomical need for salt, mm -hmm. uh, which is why you give salt to livestock. Yeah. Uh, as, you know, there's, you can have too much salt, but I, the humans need some salt. So that seems to be a fairly basic universal thing. Pepper, I'm honestly not as sure about, uh, except that pepper in the sense of black pepper, what we all think of when we think of the pepper grinder on the table, was one of the earlier spices to be imported to ancient Rome and ancient Greece from uh, parts of North Africa and from what we now call the Middle East. I think it was just accessible so early oh, that it okay. became a sort of 
base spice in the sense that it was available for so long, uh, the pepper trade route developed so early that it simply became something people thought of as basic and common and accessible. You know, because you do want to say, you know, why, why don't we have pepper, salt and cinnamon on the table? Why don't yeah. we have salt and ginger <laughs> on the table? Now, I suspect there are people who would also talk about actual flavor profiles and the adaptability of black pepper. So I'm not sure there's a single answer, but I think it's a really good question. Still on the topic of spices, um, what impact do you think food has had on an area's culture? I mean, with spices, certainly the, the primary impact, as I said, would be either uh, just simply the flavor profile that people become used to. A good example there is for many people now, if you think of what do they eat in Hungary? The first word that's gonna come out of somebody's mouth is goulash. It's sort of the stereotypical Hungarian food and it's very heavily based on paprika, which is the derivative of a new world pepper plant. So one of the things that you often read about Hungary and about Eastern Europe in general is they wouldn't have had paprika before 1492, but paprika became so popular that it's now thought of as an aspect of the culture of those regions and a sort of marker and it's what you expect to eat when you go there. And you could say the same thing about other places. The fact that we think of potatoes as being quintessentially Irish, uh, the Irish didn't have potatoes until they were imported from the New World, but it became a sort of cultural marker. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you could say that with lots of things. There's also the impact, as I said, on labor forces. When you have whole populations who are being put to work in spice fields, or I don't think we can quite call sugar a spice, but that's the classic example of you know yeah. people whose entire life as a people was shaped by the need to provide labor for sugar plantations. And the, the most obvious example there is Africans who were enslaved and brought to the Caribbean. But later, after the end of formal slavery, what a lot of Americans don't know is that there were huge numbers of people brought from China and India to serve the sugar trade as very, very low paid labor. So those are aspects of food affecting culture. What would you say makes a food? Like you mentioned potatoes being Irish even though they weren't there until so long. Like what makes that food known as an Irish food for an example? Well, in that case, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Irish were among the first people in Europe to really adopt potatoes in a big way, to, mm -hmm. to make potatoes a big part of their diet. And that probably happened around, oh, 1700 or soon after. There was a period when most other Europeans, they might have been feeding potatoes to their animals, but they didn't really think of them as something to eat. There are a whole lot of environmental reasons why the Irish took to potatoes. Potatoes grow very well in Ireland. They grow where other things won't grow very well. So that was part of it. The Irish were known for eating potatoes you know, really from about the mid-18th century on. The other big reason with Ireland is that I think almost everybody, at least in North America, knows about the Irish famine of the 1840s, yeah. which was utterly and completely caused by a failure of the potato crop. So if people didn't already think of the Irish as people who eat a lot of potatoes, I think that set it in people's mm -hmm. minds. But it did predate the famine. And yeah. That's probably a very good and very clear example. But there are other examples. You know, there's to the extent that snails are thought of as a French food. Yeah. You know, a lot of that has to do with the publication of really consciously French cookbooks in the 16 and 1700s. 
and commentary from other parts of Europe. You know, people commenting that, oh, the, the French eat snails. We don't eat those. And then that becomes a sort of cultural commentary that, that keeps getting repeated. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it just gets forgotten that snails were eaten in other places because they get so identified that way. Do you notice from food history in Europe how prominently it rolls over into our current food culture? Absolutely. Uh, to the extent that I think a lot of what we think of as American dishes were European before they were American. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the obvious example there is apple pie, that versions of apple pie were common in Europe long before anybody called themselves American. That's a pretty obvious one. A lot of our conception of a meal as being based on maybe appetizer, entree, dessert, that's a very European idea. It appeared at a particular moment in European history, our mm -hmm. sense of how we set the table, what things go together and what don't. The fact that we tend to eat savory things during the meal and sweet things after the meal. A lot of those are, are assumptions that emerged in the course of European history and we still stick to them. But of course the other thing that we see increasingly is American food habits crossing back over into Europe. Things like fast food, which really emerged in the United oh, States. Yeah and then cross the Atlantic in the other direction. Would you say that like fast food, I wouldn't say originated in America, but became kind of like big in America? I think I mean, the way we think of it, yes. Okay. Uh, there are people who have written histories of fast food. There are some really good books on that. And there were, there's always been some form of fast food. In mm -hmm. ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they had stalls that sold pancakes or that sold other very quickly produced foods that people could grab and eat on the go. Certainly there are examples of that sort of thing all over the world. Sausages that you buy from a vendor on the street, there are examples of that in medieval Europe. Uh, waffle stands. We don't think of waffles as fast food, but they were sold in markets and you could just oh. grab them and eat them. Fish and chips came from Europe. It didn't start in the United States. But to the extent that when, I think when most Americans hear the term fast food, they think of a hamburger and french fries. Yeah. And they think of a place like McDonald's. They don't necessarily think of a street stall. They think of a purpose-built building that's made to produce those fast meals. Yeah. I think that's very American. Yeah, especially with drive-throughs and everything. Like, when, like you said, when I think of fast food, I think McDonald's, Burger King, any place with a drive-through, really. <laughs> yeah, the whole drive-through thing, I think it must have originated in the United States. I can't oh. imagine that the drive-through was invented anywhere other than the United States. That makes sense, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the stalls where it's like you just grab and go type deal. I never really considered that fast food myself, even though really it is kind of quicker than a McDonald's if you think about it. It is, and, it, and if you think about food trucks, which mm -hmm. weren't common at all when I was in college, but of course for your generation, they're very, very yeah. common. I'm not sure I think of food trucks as fast food, but why are they not? Yeah. I think it's because we almost say fast food with two capital Fs and we mean something very specific. Mm -hmm. There's such a weird line between it too because like the place I work, for example, I would consider it fast food, but at the same time, I wouldn't because some food is made fast, literally, and then some food it takes 15 minutes to make. So it's like, is it fast food because it's made fast or gotten to you fast or is it fast food because it's mcdonald's burger king and 
all that. It's I think very, it depends on the context. Yeah, it's very interesting to think about, though. I think, but I think if you pick up a book about fast food, or if you see a TV program about fast food, you're going to assume it's McDonald's, Burger mm -hmm. King, Wendy's, maybe Subway. Yeah. In your course, History 220, what are people most interested in learning in that course? Well, it varies from year to year. Often students are very interested in the period we call the Columbian Exchange, the 1492 period, when Europeans discovered corn and potatoes and tomatoes and people in North America discovered pork and apples and, and products that had previously not been in the Americas. That tends to be a point in the course when a lot of people get interested and they often remember a lot about that part of the course even a month later when we're talking about other things. I've also had classes where people become very interested in sort of the emergence of food movements, things like vegetarianism, mm -hmm. veganism. More recently, the movement toward local food production and organic food production. Those are topics that often become very interesting at the end of the course. Yeah. But then sometimes I'll get quirky things. You know, I, I have a student or two who are really, really interested in the, the history of fishing or in the history of a particular product or a particular group of people. So it's a bit unpredictable. Mm -hmm. I, can, I could see why people would be very interested in vegetarianism and being vegan and all that because it's, as somebody who isn't a vegan, it's interesting to me as why people would want to be. And I'm going to be honest, I've done research on it, I've looked at it, and I'm like, this isn't for me, but it's, it's just interesting like that people do it to me. As for the Columbian Exchange, you said, why, why would you think that people are probably more interested in that? I think it's because it's one of the points in the course, first of all, it's somewhat familiar. Everybody mm -hmm. knows about Columbus. Everybody knows that as a big historical transition, mm -hmm. but not everybody has thought about it in practical terms, biologically and sort of environmentally before. I think it's also because it involves such really basic elements of our diet that people can sort of imagine themselves in the pre-1492 world and the post-1492 world. I think people sometimes get very entertained by trying to figure out, you know, could I have eaten this before 1492? Mm -hmm. Would this have existed? There's kind of a lot of, not quite game playing in, in it, <laughs> but you can get the list of the foods from the different places and you can sort of play with them. That's interesting. Does the course connect to other fields? Are there any other issues that go within food history? You can relate it to almost anything. and, and Every time I teach the course, I probably emphasize different themes based on what books I used, based on what the students get interested in. You could do four years worth of food history and not hit on everything. But certainly there are very obvious crossovers with economics uh, because you're into food supply and markets. Very obvious crossover with politics and the development of government because there's this whole issue of food regulation yeah. and at what point does the government achieve responsibility for food? You know, we take it for granted that the, the government will protect us against E. coli, but yeah. historically that's not always the phenomenon. But there are also, in terms of the Canisius curriculum particularly, it's pretty hard to look at food history without getting into questions of ethics and justice. And those, of course, cross over with both religion and philosophy. You know, when you talk about something like vegetarianism, to what extent 
is that ethically motivated? To what extent is it motivated by health concerns? When you talk about labor issues and governments dealing with famine, what are the political principles, what are the philosophical principles, what are the religious principles that are underlying those things? So there's lots of that crossover. Have you ever tried a food that you think everyone should try at some point in their life? I could say almost anything because I think I tend to be a believer in everybody should try everything when they get a chance. <laughs> there are things I wouldn't try. There's this fish in Asia that's poisonous. If you don't treat it just right, I'd probably skip that one. But apart from just generally thinking that I, and I do try to encourage the students in my class to try things they haven't tried before. One example I could give is to get back to the issue of spices, something like saffron. If I have students reading that historically saffron was one of the most expensive substances in the world and created a lot of trade issues, I would want students to have some sense of what it tastes like. And it's not hard, you know, it's expensive, but it's not so expensive mm -hmm. that you can't put it in something and taste it. I think it's important for people to try foods in their most basic level. One thing I've done is I've boiled up a pot of barley and brought it into class for people to try it. It's literally just barley and water. But at the beginning of the course, we read so much about the extent to which people survived on grain, mm -hmm. the extent to which early cooking practices were almost always based on various methods of cooking grain. We talk a lot about what did people survive on when yeah. they didn't have access to a wide variety. and. Many people now have never tried a very simple grain with nothing added to it. People have had oatmeal, but barley is yeah. usually a mystery. So I, I'm not sure everybody has to try it, <laughs> but in the context of my course, it's something I encourage people to, you know, this is what you're talking about when you talk about people surviving on barley for mm -hmm. years on end. It kind of gives you that little bridge to, I guess, their world of like what they had to deal with. And then, cause you like for barley, for example, one of the first things I think of is like, beef barley soup. Exactly. And it's like, I never thought about just having the barley itself, because why, why would I? And but. apart from occasionally when it's served at a restaurant as a side dish, I never mm -hmm. just eat barley by itself. Yeah. But when I've brought it into class, I've had students who actually say, I really like this. I'm going to buy some <laughs> and make it for breakfast. That's interesting. Just, depending on what the students are reading, sometimes I, I will want them to try a very particular dish so that I'm sure they know what it is they're reading about. Back to the saffron. So what would you say would probably be the best thing to, I guess, mix it with? If you just wanted to taste it, mm -hmm. I think you could probably do a lot worse than just stir a little bit into a little bit of milk and just sip it. Oh, okay. Or even water. But places where you're likely to actually encounter it, there are a lot of usually very old European recipes for saffron breads and saffron rolls. Oh. And the other place you'll often get saffron is in Spanish dishes like paella, the, oh, which okay. is usually rice and seafood. It's quite commonly served with saffron. There's so many other flavors there. Mm -hmm. I think if you really just want to taste it, I would go with something like a saffron bun or a saffron roll. Okay. Uh, and what would you say is the most expensive spice today? I think it's still saffron. You think it is? And these things are relative. Yeah. When they do the comparisons, it's always ounce for ounce or pound for pound. Yeah. And saffron is very light. So it's just this, these little fibers. It doesn't, so an ounce of saffron is a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it would last you a long time. So the comparisons can be a bit weird. The other thing that 
and I think a lot of people don't realize this unless they cook and unless they buy spices, uh, vanilla is getting to be one of the more expensive spices. Oh. It's so basic, you've had it in your cupboard your whole life. Yeah. yeah. But if you go to buy vanilla, it's actually quite expensive and has been becoming more expensive. Do you know why that is? It has to do, as I understand it, in recent years, I think there have been some flooding issues in some of the places that produce a lot of vanilla. Vanilla is made from an orchid. And I think the plants take a long time to mature. When you have a weather crisis that destroys the crop, it can take many, many years to build yeah. it back. I think that's what the issues are primarily. Well, that's kind of sad to hear. Well, you could still buy vanilla. Yeah. It's still doable. <laughs> you just have to kind of think about it. And there's artificial vanilla, mm -hmm. which is a lot of commercial products are probably made with artificial vanilla, and we don't even know it yeah. because it's actually a pretty good artificial flavor. But the real stuff is getting to be expensive and valuable. Interesting. How have restaurants impacted the way food has been served and prepared? Has it changed much or not at all? I think it has changed. And the coming of restaurants is a topic that students often really like in my class. It's kind of hard to get at that because often we have better information about restaurants. We have menus. We have pictures. Uh, sometimes it's easier to figure out how restaurants were serving food than to figure out what people were actually doing at home. But I think there has been an impact. Once restaurants became popular, I think that the idea that a meal looks a certain way, that the idea that you begin with one kind of food and then you move on to the main course and then you clear the table and then you have the dessert, I think to some extent that's been influenced by restaurants mm -hmm. and certainly particular foods, foods that are new to a particular region or a particular country, people tend to encounter them first in restaurants. Mm -hmm. And then maybe later they begin cooking them at home, and maybe they never do. I mean, yeah, definitely. Pizza came into the American diet via restaurants. And for many people, it never, it, it never became anything other than a restaurant food. Oh. Sushi came in with sushi restaurants. Mm -hmm. Buffalo is known for its foods such as chicken wings, beef on whack. Is there any place that you think relates to food as Buffalo does? Oh gosh. I think Buffalo is definitely a food city. Mm -hmm. And I speak as somebody who didn't come from here, although I've lived here for 30 years. I don't think Buffalo is unique in that. I mean, Chicago certainly you know, has a strong reputation for its hot dogs, its pizza, certain kinds of sandwiches. Pittsburgh has very strong food traditions. Philadelphia does. But of the places I've lived, I would say Buffalo has a more deeply held food tradition than a lot of other places. Like when I think of food, I think uh, San Francisco is known for their seafood. True. So many people told me like, oh, if you ever go there, you gotta try their seafood. But sourdough bread too is also mm -hmm. a big San Francisco thing. And, yeah. I, and I bet you'd try that. The other place, I guess of American cities, the other really obvious example is New Orleans. Oh yeah. New Orleans might even have buffalo beef. Oh, that's interesting. As a food city. But there are other places that maybe they have food traditions, but they're not as widely known. Yeah. If you go to Indianapolis, I bet there's something that the, the natives would tell you to eat, but mm -hmm. I don't know what it would be. I want to just say thank you, Dr. Oh. Jabarit, for coming in and having us interview. Thank you. About... This was fun. You made me think about some things that I'll have to incorporate into the course well, next I'm time. Glad. I'm glad that your course will have some more interesting topics. And again, thank you for coming in and speaking to us. Mm -hmm. And, and thank you both, and I hope it all goes well.
You can listen and subscribe to this episode at the Modest Podcast on Spotify.